The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and now continue our worship as we look to God's Word. Let's go ahead and look at uh, the book of Titus. If you want to follow along in an outline, I put one there on the bulletin, and we're looking at verses 8 and 9. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 7. When Paul wrote this letter, 4 through 7 was one sentence. This is the greatness of God's salvation. We've actually been going through the whole book of Titus a little at a time, kind of theme by theme, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence. And we were reminded that we've already covered chapter 1 where Paul talks about what a godly leadership in a local church needs to be. As Paul is telling that to Titus who lived on this, or Titus was visiting this island of called Crete where new churches were being established and people needed to be trained in the basics of Christianity. And it starts with what biblical godly leadership is like in a church and what the qualifications are. And so then he moved from establishing a proper leadership to chapter 2 where he basically was outlining for everybody based on what stage you're at in life, this is how you live. These are your priorities. And he based it on the demographics kind of of what your age was. And so that was chapter 2. If you're a Christian and this is your age, this is these should be the priorities in your life and this is how you should live your life in the context of the church as you interface and rub shoulders with fellow believers. This is how you're supposed to live in the church. And then he transitions to this last chapter here where Paul is now telling Titus to tell the Christians in Crete that now I'm going to tell you how you should live in the world among unbelievers. You go do your job daily. You go punch in. You go check in. You go uh, to the supermarket. How are you supposed to interact with those who don't know Christ? And so that's the point of emphasis in chapter 3. And that's really a practical command and question for us because we interact with people all the time every day who are not Christians, whether it's in our family, at work, just out on the street, public places, sporting events. And Christians, are have, we have a mandate from God of a proper decorum of Christ-likeness that we need to take with us everywhere we go with unbelievers in the world, starting with the unbelieving government under which you live. And so uh, that's where we started, and that's the context. And so let's go ahead and look at uh, the rest of chapter 3. He says, Be godly and submissive towards your governing officials, even if they're not Christian. Be a good citizen, even if they're sinners. And then he reminds us why. Because you also were a pathetic sinner yourself, Christian, so don't be arrogant. Don't forget from where God saved you. So you need to have really compassion for all human beings made in God's image, even those who are not Christians. Then he tells us about the greatness of the gospel in verses 4 through 7. You got saved out of your sin and had nothing to do with you or me. Nothing we did. Didn't have anything to do about how good we were. It was all about how good and gracious and merciful God the Savior is. And his work in Jesus Christ. It is all of him. So he gets all the glory. What a great reminder. That was our reminder last week. So as you're walking out in the world among unbelievers, remember it's not all about you. It's all about God. It's all about the Savior. It's all about Christ. And it's all about a proper attitude towards other people. That's how a Christian should conduct themselves. And now we're looking at verse 8 and 9. And now he's kind of putting an exclamation point, poof, on what he just said. 
And in verse 8 he says, this is a trustworthy statement. What I just told you is truth. It is divine truth. It is heavenly truth. It comes from God Himself. It's not some man's opinion. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, Titus, to your congregation and all pastors, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So he's nearing his conclusion here. And in verses 8 and 9, he's basically telling Christians, Christians, in light of everything I just said, you need to stay focused. Everything I just said in chapter 1, chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, remember it, focus on it, live it, don't be derailed, don't be distracted by the trials of life, the hardships of life, the temptations of life. Stay focused on everything that I just told you as a Christian, that you might live a God-honoring life that is displayed through good works among a lost world. Stay focused. And that's why I titled the sermon Stay Focused because that's his point of emphasis here. And he summarizes it down to two things. And in order to stay focused spiritually as you live in the church, in the world, do one thing and refrain from another thing. And so that's in verse 8 and 9. In verse 8 he's reminding Christians what they should do. And then in verse 9 he says, avoid the following things, stay away from them. That'll help you stay focused. That'll keep you from getting derailed. Or getting or stumbling, which is so easy to do in this world. So how do we stay focused in the Christian life just on the basics that please God and make a difference in this world? It's verse eight and nine. I broke it up into three points. Here's how we stay focused and stay away from the traps that so easily entangle us. Kind of point of emphasis and command for the pastor, a command for uh, the saints, and then also all believers including the pastor. So let's look at point number one that I said at the beginning of verse 8 where Titus is being reminded by the Apostle Paul with this divine truth that Titus is supposed to communicate to all these local churches that they're supposed to implement in their life. Keep in mind, we said many, many weeks ago as we looked at chapter 1, I think it was verse 12, where Titus was just for a while on this island in the Mediterranean Sea called Crete that still exists today and there are people that actually still live there today And in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, the people that lived on Crete originally, they were pagans. They knew nothing of Christianity. And then the Gospel of Jesus Christ and Christianity came to the island. And Christianity became a new religion on the island. But before Christianity invaded that island, those people's lives, the Cretans, who were isolated from the rest of the world, had a very interesting and definitive, distinctive culture about them. And Paul diagnosed it historically saying, remember, the Cretans are lazy, lazy gluttons. Generically speaking is what he was saying. And we were reminded we could say that about Americans, right? We're, we're kind of materialistic, wouldn't you say, compared to the rest of the world? I mean, you could say that about any culture. Uh, they're uh, workaholics in that culture. They're whatever. They're lazy. They're materialistic. They're self-centered. And that was kind of his generic diagnosis of Crete at that time. Cretans, they're lazy. And they're pretty much self-centered, about pleasing self. So a point of emphasis all throughout the book of Titus that shows up again in our passage today is that he wants to remind these new Christians who used to be just Cretans, lazy people, that now that you're Christians, you are new creatures and God has called you to something new and part of that new is living other-oriented and part of living that other-orientedness and manifesting it 
itself is serving others. You are no longer to be like the old unsaved Cretan who was just lazy, self-serving your pleasures all the time. Now you need to be involved in ongoing, regular good deeds towards humanity, towards your fellow man, even towards unbelievers on behalf of God because that is a good thing to do. That is what God has called us to do as Christians. So there's a theme all throughout the book of Titus A point of emphasis being on Christians are called to do good deeds in the world. So that actually intertwines itself through the passage today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Stay focused. Don't get derailed. Starts with the pastor, beginning of verse 1. This is a trustworthy statement. What is? Well, everything he just said. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 7. And Pastor Titus... And concerning these things, what things? The things I just told you all about. Qualifications for elders, how you're supposed to live in the world, how you're supposed to live in the church, based on where you're at in life, what God's calling you to do. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So Titus, you need to preach. You need to preach confidently. You need to stay focused in your preaching. Uh, The reason he needed to remind Titus of that is because Titus was coming into churches in Crete that had problems. The churches, get this, the churches in Crete and the Christians in Crete were dysfunctional. They were. They were messed up. They had problems. That's why he's writing this letter. This letter is a corrective, as is every other New Testament epistle. They're always written to straighten out the Christians who were all messed up, either in their behavior or their thinking. And, and that is also true in Titus. So the problem in the churches in Crete were that there were people who infiltrated the church and they called themselves Christian teachers and Christian leaders and they were divisive, they were arrogant, they were speaking wrong things. Chapter 1, verse 10 says they were rebels, they were rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, spiritually speaking, especially the Jewish version that infiltrated the churches. And Paul says, Titus, you've got to silence those guys. They're leading the church astray. They're deceiving Christians. They're dividing the body of Christ. You need to deal with them. That is a high calling. And you need a lot of courage and supernatural ability to pull that off, to go into churches that you don't belong to. You're an outsider, and you're going to go straighten them out and point your finger? And they're really going to listen to you? So at the end, you know, Paul's charging, okay, Titus, I know this is not going to be easy. This is going to be hard. You're going to get resistance. But you have got to remain on. Stay confident. Keep preaching the things that you know are true. Present tense verb, by the way, at the beginning of verse 8, when he says, I want you to speak confidently. Keep on speaking confidently. Confidently, keep on preaching with authority. Let no man resist you in terms of what you're teaching and speaking. And what was he supposed to be speaking and teaching confidently was the truth of God, was Scripture, was divine revelation, was the Bible. And that's really the call of every pastor who teaches the Bible. We are to speak confidently, speak with authority. And continually, and continually, and not relent and stop. And the reason we can speak with authority is because actually the authority isn't in me as a person. It's delegated authority. The, the authority is inherent in the Bible because Scripture is breathed by God. So if I'm getting the interpretation accurate and I'm getting the interpretation correct, then I simply just teach it and I can teach it with authority. I can even teach the controversial passages with authority and confidently. And that is a challenge for a lot of pastors. They back off. They shy down. They lack courage. Because why? They're afraid of what somebody might think. 
They, somebody in the crowd might be offended by what the Bible says, so I better dance around that verse, or no, let's just skip that verse, or I better candy coat that verse. And the Bible's clear. This is what God wants us to hear. Teach it faithfully. Just dispense it. This isn't my truth. This is not human opinion. I didn't make this up. This isn't what Cliff says. This is what the Bible says. That actually relieves me big time of a lot of obligation, a lot of fear. It's just, okay, I've been called to preach what the Bible says. I'm just going to study it discern what it means, and then just communicate it the way it was written. And then kind of let the chips fall where they may, as God does His work. And so that's what Paul's telling Titus to do. Titus, you are the pastor. You have got to keep preaching the truth. Don't be intimidated. Don't compromise the truth of the Bible. Don't be a man pleaser. Don't do that. This is God's Word. Just look at one passage that's a parallel. We're Paul had to say the same thing to Timothy, who was in a similar situation in Ephesus, where they had all kinds of problems, and Paul sent Timothy to the church of Ephesus to kind of try to straighten it out. Timothy was a little younger. Timothy was a little more timid than Titus. Timothy needed a little more of a shot in the arm than Titus did. So Paul repeatedly reminds Titus, let nobody look down on your youthfulness or your inexperience. Just keep preaching the Word of God. Don't be derailed. Don't be distracted. Don't be intimidated. Don't compromise it. Don't water it down. Just give it straight. It's God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this is actually the same time frame. Here's Timothy over in Ephesus while Titus is over in Crete. And Paul's saying basically the same thing to each pastor. Timothy, I chal- uh, starting at verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is the judge of the living and the dead. There's the authority, Timothy. It's not in you. It is in God Almighty. He said that. That's why I am relieved and at ease when I have to stand up and preach a controversial passage or topic because I know, okay, if they get mad at me, it's not my fault, it's God's fault because it's His Word, not mine. I didn't make that up. He did Controversial things that people don't like, that people get mad about, like things like hell, the reality of hell. You've got to preach on hell. Jesus preached on hell. Jesus taught on hell more than anybody else. And He taught on it clearly, authoritatively, dogmatically, emphatically, and we do the same. And I do it not because I made up the concept of hell. God did. Jesus did. Jesus created hell. Jesus manages hell. Jesus has been to hell. He is in charge of hell. So he can speak on it authoritatively and I just communicate his message. So in light of that, I solemnly charge you with the authority of God, Timothy. Verse 2, here's the mandate. Preach the Word. That's what a preacher should do. It's just, just the Bible. Yeah, stories are nice, but that's not the Word of God. Grandiose quotes from the Puritans, those are interesting, but that's not the Word of God. Just preach the Word. Preach the Bible. Preach Scripture. Preach the mind of God. That is the living Word of God that the Holy Spirit of God uses to work on the hearts of people. Preach the Word. Stay focused. Not human opinion. That's the simple mandate of the preacher. Stay focused. So I, as a pastor of this church, I have to stay focused and not be derailed. Did you know there's a temptation to do that? To be derailed? To be a faithful preacher of what's in here? Do you know, when I'm studying, sometimes I'll come to a passage and think, okay, I've got to preach this next week. Yikes! That's kind of scary. Yikes! Whoa, that might offend some people. Yikes! Wow, do I really believe that? So I've got to struggle with it in my own soul first. But God said, well, if you're going to be my preacher and faithful, then you've just got to preach the Word as it is. So the challenge, if there's a challenge for you in the pew, there's a challenge first in the pulpit with me. 
But that's what the preacher is called to do, preach the word. And that's what he means in Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. Titus, keep on preaching, keep on teaching. Do not be derailed. Stay focused. The people of God need the word of God. You've got to be a faithful dispenser of the truth to feed their soul, to warn them, among other things and benefits that the word of God does for the people of God. So that's point number one. And not getting derailed. You better have somebody leading your church, teaching at your church, preaching at your church that is not going to be derailed and distracted, but is committed to the preaching of the Word of God as God has given it. It starts there. Then point number two on not being distracted, but staying focused in the priorities of ministry. And that's a command now after commanding Titus the preacher. He's now a general command to all believers in the churches. That's the second part of verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. Titus, and concerning these things that I just told you, I want you to speak confidently, keep preaching these things. So that, in order that, for the purpose of, so he's saying, faithful biblical preaching will produce the following. That's what so that means. Keep preaching the Bible accurately and faithfully so that, for the purpose of, those who have believed, so faithful preaching will have a benefit for those who have believed. Who are those who have believed? Christians. Keep preaching faithfully so that Christians can be blessed. How? Well, specifically, he tells us the rest of verse 8. Keep preaching the Word of God faithfully so that those who have believed, Christians in your church, Christians in your congregation, will be reminded of the truth of God from Scripture. And as a result, they will be more attentive and careful to heed what God wants to be sensitive to it because it's easy to be distracted in this world when there's not a regular intake of the Word of God. Isn't it easy to be distracted? It is very easy to be distracted. You leave church, you get out, and you're thinking of the next sports game. Or you get in your car and you turn the radio on and there's the news. And then you get home and, oh, I'm hungry. And then you're distracted by all the rest. I mean, distraction, distraction, distraction. It is easy to be distracted. So the Christian needs ongoing regular reminders of divine truth from God so that they will stay focused, being careful, says verse 8. Being careful in their Christian life. Being careful to keep the right priorities. Being careful to have the right focus. Being careful not to be derailed by distractions of life. Being careful to do what, Paul? The end of verse 8. Keep preaching the Word of God because it's going to have an effect on God's people, Christians, so that they will be reminded of the truth of God, that they might be careful to engage in good deeds. That's one of our basic callings is to engage in good deeds as a Christian. The famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that famous salvation passage, for by grace you have been saved by grace through faith apart from works so that no one might boast. And then verse 10 goes on to say that before the foundation of the world, God already determined what good works we would fulfill in this life after we become Christians. God has called us. He has saved us to do good works. We're not saved by doing good works, but we are saved to do good works. Huge difference and distinction. The basic calling, one of them, of a Christian is that they'd be transformed and redeemed so that they might do good deeds, good works on behalf of God. And that's the theme of the book of Titus because the Cretans, they were lazy. And Paul knows. He knows human nature. Okay, so you were unsaved for 27 years, and in 27 years you develop habits, right? 
you develop just natural habits and patterns of life that are hard to shake. So when you become a Christian, it's not like all the old habits are instantaneously going to go away. Some of those habits will carry over and nag you now that you're a Christian. And one of the greatest habits that Cretans had is they were lazy. They were professionals at sitting in the lazy boy with the bowl of popcorn and the remote control. And so Paul says, don't carry that over into your life as a Christian. Just do the opposite. Now you are to serve others. And in order to do that, you need to have ongoing regular reminders of the Word of God from your faithful preaching pastor. Don't be distracted. Stay focused. These things are good. These things are good. If you are given to a life of ministry of doing good, if you are uh, committed as a Christian to doing good deeds and good works, it's a good thing. It is a blessed thing. It pleases God. That's why it's good. It pleases Jesus. That's why it's good. It blesses other Christians. That's why it's good. It blesses unbelievers. That's why it's good. It is good. He also says it's profitable. It is helpful. Our good deeds that are legitimately good deeds actually help people. It edifies other people, encourages them, helps them along in life. It's profitable. That's what we need more of is godly, spirit-filled Christians led by the Word of God doing good deeds out in the world that are good and profitable to the unbelieving world. Boy, wouldn't that make them stop and look and take a second look at what the church of Jesus Christ is really about. We're called to a life of Good deeds. Since this theme of good deeds is woven all throughout Titus and comes up a couple times in this passage, we need to define what a good deed is, don't we? It'd be interesting if I asked you, okay, on the back of your bulletin, give me a one sentence definition of good deeds. I guarantee we would have different answers. I guarantee some answers would conflict with other answers. Really? So we need to define biblically what is Paul talking about a good deed? Seems like a no brainer, but it's not. The world, they have their definition of good deeds and sometimes that taints or distorts what the church means by a good deed. Huge difference. So here's a simple definition, biblically speaking, of what a good deed is, especially the way Paul uses it in Titus. I, I made it up, by the way. Okay, here we go. Uh, but hopefully I gleaned it from Scripture. A good deed is simply, it's an action. That's huge. If you're not doing actions, you're not doing good deeds. If you're just doing talk, that, those aren't, that's not good deeds. So it's got to be an action. Well, I, I wanted to do that, but I didn't. To take out the trash? Well, I meant to. The king of good intentions. I, I'm guilty as charged. So a good deed, it's an action that helps others. That's key. It's an action. Because you can do an action that serves self, right? That's self-serving. A good deed, biblically speaking, it's an action that serves or helps others, so it's other-oriented by nature. But we're not done yet because you can have an action that serves and helps others that is an unbiblical, ungodly deed. It can be a satanic, worldly deed. So you do an action that enables or helps somebody else, some drug dealer, to do some drug deal. That's an abomination. That's, that's not a good deed, biblically speaking. So we need one more component of what a good deed is. It's an action that helps others that pleases God. There it is. That pleases God. Because you, you can do actions that serve others that are ungodly. I think about when I was uh, five years old. I had, no, I still have, nine older siblings. And we lived in a neighborhood that had, at last count, when I was growing up, 64 children in the neighborhood. And for some reason, I was like always the youngest and always being left out and always being beat up and whatever else. 
but I was conveniently used by the older kids, including my siblings, on certain occasions that they might accomplish their will. And I will never forget, I was routinely used uh, where a group of guys would take me over to the Safeway across the street, maybe seven, eight guys, and, they'd take, and I'm the youngest one, and I'm cute, and I'm four years old, and I'm four or five years old, and they're all older than me, they're in elementary school, and they, make, they just grab me by the hand, take me, they go down the candy aisle, and they, when nobody's looking, as they have guards on each end, uh, they just grab a whole bunch of candy bars and just shove them down my pants, the four or five-year-old. Cliff, yeah, the cute little kid. And then they go through the checkout stand with one candy bar, and then they get out, and then they take all the candy bars out of my pants. So they used me for a dirty deed that was ungodly, that was theft, and, but it's a true story. Um, I was an accomplice to that. That did not please God. But that's sinful human nature. So the point number two is that uh, we can't be derailed. We've got to stay focused. And the saints need to stay focused by doing godly deeds. That means doing actions that help others and that pleases God. It is in His will. It is compliant with Scripture. Have a life given over in service to Christ by doing good deeds. And let's go on to finally the third point there. And that's in verse 9. If you want to stay focused, do these things. Preacher got to stay focused. Preach the Word. The saints in the church got to stay focused. Committed to hearing the Word and taking the Word, applying the Word of God and doing good deeds. And all of us to stay focused have to put away something. So the, the first part was what you need to do and keep doing. The second part in verse 9 is what we need to shun or avoid to stay focused. Well, what do we need to shun? Well, here it is. Verse 9, Okay, Christian in the local church, in order to stay focused, glorify God, produce good works, be pleasing to Him, have an evangelistic impact on the world, avoid the following things. There it is. We need to avoid. We need to shun. Put away. Literally turn our back on. This is proactive on our part. See it, diagnose it, turn your back, run. Stick your hand in the face. Not. What do we need to shun? Uh, four, four things, Paul says. Shun foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law. Why? Because they are unprofitable. In contrast to good godly deeds which are profitable at the end of verse 8, and those four things in verse 9 are also worthless in contrast to the word good at the end of verse 8. So he's making a contrast here. So shun at least those four things. What do those four things have in common? Well, they're all verbal baggage. It's all about talk. It's not good deeds. It's not actions. Blah, 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 blah. And you know what? It's in the context of the church. And the content has nuances of religious conversation. So-called spiritual conversation, so-called religious conversation, quoting Bible verses, ooh, that sounds spiritual, ooh, that must be true. Yet all the content of this talk, its fruit and byproduct is division. That's all it does. It's creating division in the church. So that's the bottom line sin here. Avoid creating division in, among, among the body of Christ if you're a Christian. That's how Satan attacks the church. I'll say it again and again until we get it in our head. Satan attacks the church in three ways. Through false doctrine, immorality in the church, and through division. Pitting Christians against each other in the church. It's really that simple. It's in every epistle in the New Testament. And that's the point of emphasis here. So you want to stay unfocused and not be distracted from ministry and give all your energies to God and doing what you're supposed to be doing, then 
do these things. Keep preaching the Word of God, taking in the Word of God, applying the Word of God and doing good deeds that bless people and avoid these things. Avoid controversy and disunity in the church from so-called Christians who all they do is blah, 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 blah. Because that's his point of emphasis in verse 9. But looking a little more specifically, what are these things that we are to avoid that are so common in the church? They were common enough for Paul to mention it here by name. And you search church history, they were common in church history, and they are, they are true today. Here are the things that typically come up in churches that create division through verbal conversation. Avoid the following things in the church among so-called professing Christians. Avoid foolish controversies. Uh, foolish is the word moronic. Don't be a moron. Don't be in, literally, that's the Greek word. Don't be involved in moronic conversations. Moronic, literally the Greek word is questionings. Questionings. Boy, that should scare us and remind us of Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came up to Adam and Eve, actually Eve first, and questioned the truth of God. Did not God say? Did God really say? So it's this cynical, subtle, quasi-spiritual, deceptive, satanic question that just a hint causes you to pause a moment and question the veracity and the character of God. And you know what? That goes on in the church. When a so-called professing Christian does the same thing with their moronic questioning. Did not so-and-so do this? And we stop, we pause, we give it an audience, and boom. And then Satan reigns in his hook. And the byproduct is devastation through division in the church. And he says, you know what? Don't even have anything to do with foolish questionings and controversies in the church. It'll be destructive. The Corinthians were experts at it. So that's the first thing. Stay away from that. Foolish, foolish questions. Uh, the next one is genealogies. Uh, that refers to the genealogies in the Bible. Uh, there was a Jewish sect that called themselves Christians and they specialized in looking at genealogies in an allegorical manner to just make up truth and make up theology to confuse people. Esoteric interpretations of Scripture. Avoiding allegory, allegorisms. Well, that doesn't apply to us today. Yeah, it does. Remember... Uh, Pastor uh, Campbell, whatever his name was, and uh, told us the world was going to end two years ago in May 2011. Well, if you read his book like I did called 1994, he wrote 1994 concluding that the world was going to end first in 1994, and well, it didn't. So then he had to write another book. And then he said it's going to end in 2011. And the, the way he came up with the formula of the world's going to end in 2011 is he, looked at, he used a genealogy in Genesis gave it an allegorical interpretation that was esoteric that nobody else would get out of that genealogy, and lo and behold, boom, he scared half the nation. So, yeah, there are evidences of that today. So avoid that kind of stuff. Kooky, weird interpretations of the Bible, like the Bible code, and if you read the first sentence in Genesis backwards, it says, Hitler will beat up Stalin, or whatever. And you read it at home in the mirror with the light off at a certain angle. No. But that goes on. So avoid foolish questionings. Avoid genealogies and weird interpretations of the Bible. Uh, avoid strife. That word is straightforward. Strife. Or arguments or contentions. Boy, if you just start interacting with a fellow so-called Christian and you just, you just take a step back and you know what? They're, they're just full of strife. They just want to argue. They just want to bicker. They just want to complain. They just want to gripe then you need to stop and realize, wow, we're supposed to avoid this kind of stuff. We are supposed to live in unity. Jesus said, blessed is the peacemaker, not the strife maker. 
That is ungodly. That is divisive. That is a tool of Satan. Avoid it. Run. And then finally, uh, also run from shun, avoid, have nothing to do with disputes about the law, wranglings about the Bible. The emphasis here is on legalists in the church. There are Christian legalists and there are professing Christian legalists and legalism is very divisive wherever it is found in the church. It always is. Where you take, you just misinterpret the Bible and raise it. It's really a human opinion and you raise it to the authority of Scripture. And then you dictate, you mandate that everybody else lives by that man-made standard instead of in accordance with the Word of God. So that's really talking about legalism. Don't let legalism leak into your church. It is destructive. It is divisive. And that's what the Pharisees were. They were legalists to the core. So avoid that, those four things because they're unprofitable. They don't help anybody. They don't bless anybody. They're not good. They are worthless. You know what that means? They accomplish nothing. They distract from ministry. You know, as a pastor who has to deal with stuff behind the scenes, boy, this verse means a lot to me. How much good I could be focused on moving forward with and accomplishing in terms of good ministry, and yet I am continually derailed and distracted by things like this that don't honor God, that honor Satan. It's tiring. And we lose our focus. And sometimes it's easy for me to get distracted and lose my focus. And thank God I've got fellow believers and family and wife and other people that, hey, McManus, you've got to stay focused. Keep your eye on the goal. Keep your eye on Christ. Keep moving forward. This is a marathon, the Christian life, not a 100-yard dash, right? So we need to stay focused. These are great reminders uh, from the Apostle Paul. You know what? We, we can't do it in our own strength. We need the Spirit of God to help us. God's mercy to help us. That's why these commands come on the tail end and they are a byproduct of just the greatness of salvation, right? We are saved first, but we are saved unto good works. So I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a member of GBF or a regular attender, in light of this passage, stay focused. Stay focused. And here's a couple questions for you. What's your ministry here at GBF? What is your ministry? Then I just say, stay focused, keep doing it. Just keep doing it. What's your ministry in the world? If you got one, keep doing it. Don't be distracted. What are you doing currently to bless other people? What are you doing by way of a lifestyle and a regular discipline that is profitable to others and, a, and good before God and beneficial to other people? Keep doing it. That other stuff, run. Avoid it. And we need God's help to stay focused. Uh, we're going to pray in just a minute, but now we're just going to we have the privilege now to have communion, to go to the Lord's table together. So if you have your Bible, you want to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Maybe those of you who aren't too familiar with church life or the Bible, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, He died when He was 33. He died on the cross willingly as the substitutionary sacrifice for sin of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, by the way, Jesus was God. Jesus still is God. Jesus created the world. He came down here and took on a human body. He's existed for all eternity, Jesus has. Jesus is uncreated. He created all things. So He came down to the world that He created, took on a human body, was the God-man for 33 years. Three years He was committed to public ministry. He came down to die on the cross. He knew He was going to die. Did you know He planned His own execution? Well, that's controversial. 
Jesus planned his own execution. He even told humanity about it in advance through the Old Testament Scriptures. Here's who's going to kill me. Here's how I'm going to die. Here's why I'm going to die. He came down for 33 years, fulfilled that mission, and then he willingly went to the cross to be executed. Even though he never did anything wrong, he never even sinned. But he died on the cross as a punishment for those of us who have sinned. He was our substitute. He bore our sin. And spiritually, what happened in that transaction of hanging on the cross for six hours was God the Father who was in heaven, who Jesus lived with for all eternity, God the Father in heaven who's a holy God, poured out all of His wrath in full fury on Jesus Christ when Jesus was on the cross. And God the Father punished Jesus for every sin that we would commit. So that Jesus would absorb all the wrath of God so that if we as sinners believed in Jesus as the Savior, then God the Father who hates sin would forgive us of all of our sin and we would never have to be punished for it. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Amen. That is good news. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. And then during that three-year ministry, before Jesus left, died, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven and went back to be with the Father... He gave two ordinances to the church, to His church, to continue practicing until He returns again. Baptism is the first one. Where you get saved, you get baptized. The second one is what we call the Lord's Table or Communion, which we have the privilege of partaking in here. And Jesus had it as the last supper with His twelve apostles. Actually, it was the Passover supper. And He just turned it into what He called the Lord's Supper. And He used it as a visual aid. Here, eat this bread. Drink this wine. This wine should remind you of my blood that I'm about to die on the cross for you. And the, the bread should remind you of my life that I'm going to give you in my death on your behalf. So every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're remembering my substitutionary death on your behalf as a sinner. And if you believe in me as your substitute, you can have all of your sins forgiven and you can be immediately adopted into the family of God and you can know for certain that you will be and spend all eternity in heaven with God the Father and all the saints of all the ages, saved from God's wrath, saved from hell, saved from eternal death, saved from Satan. It's amazing. But that's what we celebrate when we do communion. So communion is open to anybody that is a Christian. So we're going to do that. Uh, And when we do, the ushers will come about midway in just a second, and then whoever's in the front half here will have two lines coming up. Grab the bread, grab the cup, hold it, go back and have a seat. And then the back rows will do the same. Go out the back door, come around, and hold the, the water or the, the drink and the bread, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll partake together. But while you're sitting down and waiting, in your own heart as a Christian, just be thanking God for His death for you. Thanking, thanking Him for all the sins that you've been forgiven of. And just commune and talk with Him personally in your own heart. Now I'm going to read... Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which tells us about the the Lord's Supper or communion we're about to partake. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord, verse 23, that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, just before His death, He took some bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. So that's what we do today. We do it in remembrance of Jesus. And in the same way, He took the cup, and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and the forgiveness that comes with that until He 
comes. So there's also a reminder that, you know what, Jesus is alive. He came back from the dead. And Jesus is coming again. And so that's what we celebrate at communion. Celebrate the fact He's a Savior and that He's coming again as our blessed King of Kings. So uh, let's go ahead and I'm going to say a word of prayer and then we're going to go ahead and partake with communion. Father, we... Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.